Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you got a chance to talk to the jury in this case, I imagine that was a powerful piece of evidence that, in my view, never should have come in. Hello, this is a prepaid call from Kimberly Boone, an inmate at a Florida Department of Corrections institution. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We've just wrapped up the incredible story of Kimberly Boone, the mother of two who was arrested, tried, and convicted for arson and the premeditated attempted murder of her husband, a crime she's always maintained she's innocent of. So of course, if you are yet to hear the Kimberly Boone story, I'm going to highly suggest you hit that pause button and head on back, catching up on the previous five episodes. Today is our bonus episode, an episode that we'll have after each one of the cases that we discuss, as I sit down with an expert, a man with decades of trial experience as a defence attorney. Michael Leonard is a partner at Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States, and a man who is the voice of reason. As someone who talks to these inmates on a very regular basis, I will admit I can see things through rose-coloured glasses. And that's why I believe these episodes are very important. Not only to get an expert's opinion, because that's certainly not me, but also to get an outsider's opinion. An opinion from someone who is not connected to these stories whatsoever. And I'll be honest, the chat really didn't go the way I thought it would because Michael from the get-go told me that he believed the prosecution had a very strong case. Sounds like it to me. I'm relying upon the reports of what the testimony was. Mm. If If the reports are accurate that eyewitnesses testified that they saw her leaving the house shortly before the fire, moving boxes out of the house, obvious inference that she's getting things out of the house that she didn't want to be burned, that she's not present, the kids aren't present. And, you know, in a very short period of time prior to the fire, they had uncovered evidence from the computer that she had been somebody, obviously inference would be her, had been running extensive computer searches about such things as recovering on insurance policy, Xanax, Xanax overdosing, impacts of medications, uh, what a fire marshal might look like, might look for in a fire. So, uh, there's certainly a, a heck, heck of a strong case to be made there. Uh, and I don't think that, I mean, clearly you wouldn't want the evidence about the ex-husband claiming that she tried to do the same thing to him coming into into play. 
But even without that, I mean, the case looks pretty devastating against her in my, in my limited view of what I know about the case. Well, looking at this particular case, the, the biggest sort of thing for me was the fact that initially this fire was ruled an accident or whatever it was by these two fire marshals. But then on the stand during the trial, the second trial, this is obviously we've gone through a first trial, but the second trial is that that fire marshal said that he changed his ruling from accidental to suspicious off the back of the call from detectives. Kim's telling me, obviously, I, I don't know whether this is true because I can't see whether this is true or not, but Kim's saying that even on the stand, he even said there was no way of him actually going back and looking at all the evidence because it just was too far gone. But he's gone back and, and just changed his ruling. And he, even in the news, news report where they say that the news uh, reader says he actually didn't go into details as to why he changed his ruling. He just did. Fire investigators testified they first called the fire accidental, then changed their mind. The cause of the fire now switched from accidental to an incendiary fire. He never said in detail about why his technical opinion changed. Oh, sure. I mean, the fact that the guy would change his opinion, if it's true that he did it at the urging of a detective's or law enforcement prior to trial in preparation for his testimony or after he learned that she had been charged. That's troublesome, uh, but certainly it'd be one piece of evidence that the jury would examine amongst many others, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that they didn't rule it, you know, a arson or suspicious earlier, I mean, I I don't think that's too surprising. I mean, you have fires every day. They're most likely given very little attention unless there's some reason to look further. Mm. And so the fact that he made a preliminary decision, probably based upon a very limited investigation Mm. and didn't have other evidence that would call him to question it, that doesn't surprise me. It does surprise me that, though, if he really didn't do further investigation, if that's true, and he just changed it because law enforcement told him about the case, that would certainly be very problematic. But that would just be a credibility determination Mm. uh, for the jury to make, whether that makes sense. But... Whether a fire marshal says it's arson or suspicious or not, you know, it still isn't dispositive of the issue of who said it, what their motive was, what the other, what the other evidence is that supports that person had a, a motive to, to torch the place to, to possibly kill somebody. So there, there's a lot of facts here you got to take into account. Mm. Well, let's talk about circumstantial evidence because Kim does talk about, you know, they, they built a circumstantial uh, the case against her. Uh, I mean, can you first of all explain what a circumstantial evidence case would be? Like what's involved there? Sure. Well, let's just talk about, you know, direct evidence would be, you know, someone sees the shooter shoot the victim mm. in, in a classic shooting case, right? Yeah. Um, circumstantial evidence is a reasonable inference of one fact from another fact and the underlying reasonable inference, right? Um, and so the the, the uh, explanation or analogy judges often give jurors, which we just had the judge in our case last week give the jury, was, hey, you're inside all day, you're in the courtroom, you're on the jury, and you don't know what the weather's outside, you don't have any windows, and as you come into the lobby, you see people coming in and their clothes are soaked, reasonable inferences, it's raining outside, right? Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be that simplistic or that obvious, but we make reasonable inferences all the time in our daily lives. And as jurors, they make common sense reasonable, reasonable inferences all the time because you don't always have the proverbial smoking gun. Mm. You know, cases are built on, you got this piece of evidence combined with another piece of evidence combined with another, all add up to sometimes the reasonable inference that the defendant is guilty. And sometimes those those inferences don't lead there or they're not reasonable inferences. They're more based upon speculation. 
But if you want to apply that to, to the case we're talking about, then that would be a good way to do that. It's a big thing for, for Kim. She's saying, you know, they really didn't have any strong evidence. But then, of course, we we look at the fact that, um, you know, there, the, a computer expert came along and said that he had found that things, certain things had been searched, like, you know, how do house fires start? Um, how much Xanax is too much Xanax? So, I mean, they're all very suspicious things to be searched, obviously, uh, in this particular case, seeing as the husband, yes, did have Xanax in his system. The house did catch fire. The defence really t- started to try and point the blame towards the husband. His particular testimony they thought was odd. Backside the house, if you're in trouble, why would you go there? You would go where you were seen. Tough talk between the victim and an attempted murder case and his ex-wife's lawyer. Well, I kind of got my senses, I was trying to get my senses to get a look behind me and there was fire going up the side of the wall and across the ceiling. Um, got up out of bed, was kind of disoriented, you know, kind of shaking my legs. I went down to the other end of the house because the first thing I thought was I need to get the kids out of the house because I didn't know what time of day it was. Robert Boone is the state star witness. In a very tense cross-examination, the defense said Robert Boone knew his family was in huge financial debt and that as a former firefighter, he knew a lot about fires and they hinted it wouldn't have been that hard for him to escape. But not a single burn mark on your body, am I correct? That's because I was trained, I was eating the tile. So he runs to the back of the house, he's unable to locate the kids. So then he comes back to the front of the house. They're saying that there is multiple different exits that he could have chosen to go out of, but he chose to go back into the bedroom where the fire had started and he attempted to break a window in that room. He said that he didn't choose to try any of the other exits because he was worried he wouldn't be, open to the, wouldn't be able to open the sliding door. But they're questioning why that you would go back to the source of the fire to try and break a window. Now, the, the defence's suggestion was that there was a neighbour washing his car across the road. So he was trying to make this big shot, song and dance of him being in this fire. If you're her lawyer, of course, you're going to make everything you can. You're mm-hmm. going to make every, you're going to break down every part of the case, every fact, and try to get the jury to draw a conclusion that's in your favour that you say creates reasonable doubt. Again, we don't have to prove our client's innocent. No. So you want to you create this mosaic of evidence that you say in and of itself, none of it, you know, shows that they've proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt and that even cumulatively, it leaves a lot of reasonable doubt. So you can't find in the state's favor. But, you know, before you even get to the fire, I mean, I think you've got to talk about some significant pieces of evidence. I mean, number one, you know, she had extremely strong financial motive to do this. Number two, she was the one apparently on Xanax or who, who got the Xanax. Her husband wasn't someone who took Xanax. He allegedly, from what I've read, had a high amount of Xanax in his system from unexplained reasons, which obviously the inference from the state would be that she gave it to him, of course. Um, she Her actions are certainly in question in, in that you know, the computer evidence showed, the forensic computer evidence showed that she's running searches about the effects of Xanax on somebody, how a fire marshal makes a decision. I mean, those are very damning. And so a reasonable inference was that she made the searches. You know, it was her password. Uh, certainly other people could use the computer. But it's, it's hard to convince the jury that someone else would have done that, not her. And then coincidentally, all those things are tied together in a fire a short time later. It's just a tough yeah. obstacle to overcome. And then I think some real damning evidence was, if true, the reports are that eyewitnesses said that she was leaving the house shortly before the fire 
with possessions. Okay, mm. the obvious the obvious reasonable inference being that she wanted to get the possessions out of there because she knew there was going to be fire and didn't want them burned up in the fire. So you, you got a pretty strong mosaic here from the state standpoint that they have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that she's it. Of course, you're the defense lawyer. You're going to attack every piece of that evidence, every chain, mm. and say that it, that's you know it's circumstantial. It doesn't prove anything. Uh, but when you combine it all together, which often happens in cases here and other places, you combine all those reasonable inferences. That's how their jury's going to make their determination because most cases aren't uh, open and shut. Mm. They're not simplistic where, hey, I saw her light the fire. That's direct evidence. That doesn't yeah. usually happen, right? Yeah. We don't have a video recording of her doing the fire. That would be direct evidence. So if you add up the reasonable inferences here, I mean, it, the case on its face to me sounds relatively damning against her. Another thing Kim has spoken to me about is at one point her former husband gets on the stand. He's a, an ex-husband and, and he's obviously on the stand for the prosecution. Um, and he goes on to tell them about a story one time that happened 18 years previously where he was at home and he said he could smell some sort of fumes or something burning. He goes downstairs into the basement of the house and he says he sees a, a rag stuffed into a jerry can um, or a fuel can and it's glowing red. It's very strong. I could, something was burning. And it was smoking, but it wasn't flaming. But the rag was, I, I'll, never, I'll, I'll never forget this, the rag was glowing red like it was, you know, burning, you know, from the outside of edges of the rag. And he says he comes back upstairs. She's sitting there on the lounge in her robe. So he's basically inferring that, well, she's, I, she's tried to do this before. Her argument is... This happened 18 years ago. Was never He never made any mention of it before. He never reported it to police. In fact, they stayed married for a further, uh, I think it was three years after this particular event had taken place. She's told me some things about her husband um, that would suggest the relationship ended poorly. Um, he was embarrassed by being arrested for a particular um, event. And so she's saying that, you know, he never forgave her for that. So that's why she's thinking he's bringing this up 18 years later. Now, she's calling into reference William's rule and stating that because she was never accused of this, she was never spoken to by police about this, she was never charged with this, it's purely her husband saying or ex-husband saying, she's done something like this before. She's saying that that should not have been allowed as testimony. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, it's a game-changing piece of evidence. Imagine a jury hearing that, hey. Yeah, and it was, he was the last He was the last guy to speak to for them, so it was a big thing to end on. Oh, it was, a, it was a perfect place for the government to end if that was their last witness. But imagine the impact of that is that we have a guy who was married to her and allegedly she tried to kill him too. You couldn't end on a better note than that. That would be something that would be subject to pre-trial motion practice, it's what's known as, as a prior bad act, okay? Mm. Meaning that it's something that the government's trying to use to show a pattern, modus operandi, something like that, some relevant purpose to bring that in. The problem with the evidence, as we know it in this case, is that it's very old. It doesn't seem on its face to be that similar. I mean, if, it, if, the, if the allegation is that she was home too, and there's a burning rag in their home, it doesn't, you know, lead necessarily to the inference that was an attempt to kill him. Well, no, because he right? wouldn't stick around in the house. <laughs> Correct. So that, that, that's why you kind of question why the trial judge would allow that, especially when you want to have 
such a game-changing prejudicial effect upon the defendant. You know, what happens in these cases, in any case, whether you're in federal court or state court in the states, is the judge is going to analyze, you know, the probative value of that prior bad act and whether the undue prejudice to the defendant is significantly outweighed by introducing that. In this case, I think most judges would say it's inadmissible. It's very old. It doesn't seem to be similar. It doesn't seem to be any pattern, any modus operandi, anything like that. And the fact that it was never reported, never charged, never investigated would all be strong arguments by defense counsel prior to trial that the jury should never hear that. And I think that if you got a chance to talk to those juries, I would imagine the jury in this case, I imagine that was a powerful piece of yeah, evidence that definitely. in my view never should have never should have come in. Uh, but clearly there there was other strong circumstantial evidence. But that piece alone really is a proverbial killer. That's a game changer on the case. Oh, absolutely. And as I said, it was their last, the last witness called, so they played it perfectly. The, literally the last thing the jury gets to hear as, as a witness is that man saying, well, she's tried to do this before to me. This is what happened. And then boom, that's what they end on. Um, as you said, a killer thing to end on. Yeah, exactly. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's fascinating, though, to, to hear all your thoughts on this because, I mean, from me as someone who doesn't obviously know, you know what I'm talking about or doesn't has no experience within this world, to hear you actually turn around and say, you know, you reckon there was a very strong, I mean, forget even forgetting... The, that ex-husband's testimony, you take, even taking him out of that, your opinion is that it was a very strong circumstantial evidence and, and was pretty damning. Yeah, it looks like to me. I mean, the one thing I also found interesting in your, it was either episode one or two, where she tried to very much minimize the embezzlement. And I'm not saying, you know, it's really easy to get the lines crossed when you're handling your company's business and you're using, you know, your personal finances. Things kind of get crossed. So I'm not saying that there weren't expenses. Maybe I padded it with, you know, like when I when I flew to Maryland, they also paid for my children's airfare and my husband's airfare and, yep. you know, things like that. So I knew I knew that I probably did owe them some money. 
And it's not that it's right to do that, but, you know, that's that's what it did, and, and I can take responsibility for that. But it certainly wasn't that kind of money. Most of those expenses were business expenses. From what the reports are, it was a significant amount of money. And then it sounds like at trial they introduced evidence that relatively short in time to the time of the fire, she had made an overture to her employer about paying him or her and you know some sum of money to try to make it go away so she was never reported to the police. So I, I found it interesting that she was really trying to undersell to you the the motive that she might have and you know i think you made the point well if she was going to get 200 and she owed 750 would that be a, a financial motive certainly it would be because clearly if she was able to come to employer with two hundred thousand dollars that might go a long way to assuaging that person's uh willingness to go ahead and report it because they're probably thinking they're going to get nothing out of her mm. and here they're going to get two hundred thousand, and maybe a sob story that my husband's just been killed but hey i'll turn over all the insurance proceeds to you me the poor widow so mm. that might have put to bed that embezzlement charge so i thought thought that was interesting how she kind of sold that to you which you know is not surprising from a defendant who's been convicted and look, I, when I listened, without having done any independent research, you know, she comes across uh, as compelling. She comes across as credible. She tells a good story. Uh, but when you look a little deeper about what evidence was actually presented at trial, it does present a much fuller picture. But I would concede that she does have a sounding of credibility to her. I think you have to note that it sounds like she didn't testify at trial. So she no, was never she subject to crossing. She wasn't subject to cross-examination, which is also very common, you know. Very few times do defendants actually testify, and very few times did they testify and win. So I'm not surprised that you or listeners or myself would find her story, you know, very compelling. And here's the here's the beautiful and, and confounding part of it. We're never gonna know what happened. You know, mm, we have a true. we don't have any direct evidence. We have no video recording. We don't have any admission by her. We're never gonna know. So Clearly, she could be telling us 100% the truth, and she could not be, you know, but that's what the jurors are faced with. These are difficult decisions to make, especially when they don't hear from the defendant, even though they can't consider their failure to testify. They've just been presented with a fair, fairly compelling story mm. where, you know, close in time, someone's researching all these issues, and then lo and behold, there's the fire, uh, raising all these issues, these Xanax and the fire. It's a tough one to sell to a jury that she was just doing that for fun, and there happened to be a fire involving uh, a fire marshal, her husband, and Xanax, mm -hmm. and an overdose of Xanax. So yeah. th those are tough facts to, to overcome. And then when you combine it with that fact of what should have been, in my view, inadmissible evidence, uh, it's a tough case to win. And it sounds like the jury didn't struggle with it too much. It sounds like they're only out four for hours. four hours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no matter what you say, it's a fascinating case. Um, you know, I mean, we didn't even talk about the the first <laughs> the first case for attempted murder with a shooting. I mean, I suppose you add that into the mix. And although they're not supposed to talk about that in the second trial, because she was found not guilty of that one, which is it's almost like you kind of you know it depends who you get on the day, really. I mean, because in that particular case, not only did they have the shooting of of her husband, but also they were also able to bring in. The, the fire into that case because she'd been charged with that and she was found not yeah. guilty that time around. It, it raises a couple of great points. I mean, first of all, you know, if I were representing her and had heard her tell me all the facts that she told you and, you know, I would be strenuously arguing to the jury that they, the state did not have 
uh, sufficient evidence. They had not proved her guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And unless she admitted it to me, I would still probably be talking to you today about how she's innocent. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's very easy from an outsider perspective uh, to, to make these uh, contentions that looked like a pretty good case. When you're in the, when you're in the mix and representing the client, you wholeheartedly usually believe that in your, in your position and you don't, and you, especially if you had a, have a credible sounding and coming across client like her with, you know, relatively limited criminal history, uh, who has, who has a very compelling story to tell. So, you know, that's why, you know, it's easy to look at it later and come to very different conclusions than when you're representing her. But mm. I think you're wanted to bring up the, the issue of the first case, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that was interesting that those facts, you know, seemed very interesting and circumstantial as well with the intruder. There seems to be mixed stories about where she was with the gun. Yes, I've you noticed know, from, that since talking to her. Because I think she reported to you that it made it sound like he had come back into the residence, was approaching her, mm. and then she fired. The testimony, at least as reported by the press, was that she'd actually taken that firearm gone out to the garage, which, of course, makes that case even more suspicious. But interestingly enough, clearly the jury jury didn't feel like the evidence was that compelling because they found her not guilty in that case. The big question is, you know, you just said that, you know, the jury wasn't supposed to hear or consider that. We know they didn't hear about it in the second trial, and we know they weren't supposed to consider it, but it was in the same county Mm. which got a heck of a lot of attention. It's it's very hard to believe that the second jury knew nothing about it. I mean, you you were you would in the in jury selection process in that case, you would have asked a lot of questions mm. about new news coverage they've heard about her, about this case. But in that county in Florida, it's very hard to imagine that the jury hadn't heard about the first case. And I know they're not supposed to think about it. And they certainly wouldn't discuss it during deliberations, but clearly it could have been in a lot of people's minds. We'll, ne- we'll never know the answer to that one. Again, we, we have spoken about this whole thing in juries and, and the news and that sort of stuff. And, and this one's, again, even more so because she did have that first trial and, you know, she was accused of shooting and then she, and that was all over the news and, and then goes to the next one, as you said. it's You have to just say there's definitely no way that jury didn't know about the shooting. Apparently the, her attorney did apply for um, a different venue, but he was denied. Yeah, and that's, and that's a move you would make based upon the extensive amount of pre-trial publicity, even though it's not for the same case. Mm. Clearly, that case got a lot of publicity, case number one, as did case number two. Mm. So, you know, you pick a jury, you ask them questions about what they've heard about Miss Boone. Have they heard anything about any prior cases? But you also don't want to go too far because you don't want to, you know, give them so much it's information. So they that they go, I need, I need to look this up. What's going on? <laughs> of course, yeah. of course. But, but clearly in that county, it's, it's unfathomable to believe that a lot of the jury jurors were not very keenly interested and aware of that. And that second case got a lot of publicity. And it wasn't just because it was a, a murder case on arson. It was because, hey, it's the same woman mm-hmm. who essentially, in quotation marks, got off. She was found not guilty. And therefore, you know, that got a lot of publicity. It's not just as if this was the first case. So mm-hmm. the press covered it extensively. And I'm sure to the detriment of the client and defense counsel in that case. What would happen if you were to found, find a jury member and you're talking to a jury member who was involved in that uh, second case and, and you know they were to admit and say, yeah, actually, I, I knew all about the case. I'd, I'd seen a bit of it, you know, about the shooting. We, we, we heard about it on a regular basis. What would, if they were to come forward and say that? Would that cause an issue? Well, it would, but here's, here's the problem. You start with the fact that 
jury verdicts are very hard to overturn. Mm. Okay, so even when you get you know post verdict evidence, you still have a very difficult time getting the court to overturn the verdict. However, it does happen in very limited instances. If, for instance, in your example, a jur- jurors came forward and said, "Hey, not only did I know about this, but we discussed it during deliberations." That that would probably get you a reversal and a new trial. Okay, yeah, yeah. if if you merely if you merely proved that a juror had some exposure to it in their own mind, knew about it, it's probably not going to be enough. You'd, mm. you'd need you'd need really overwhelming evidence that it was in all the jurors' minds and they admittedly considered it as part of their deliberations. If there was no evidence that they ever discussed it communicated it during deliberations and, and made it an issue, um, it's probably not going to get reversed. And even if you know certain jurors knew about it, it's probably not going to be enough. You're going to have to show that they actually considered it, relied upon it. Because what the appellate courts do is in, in trying to maintain the sanctity of the juror communications and deliberations, they'll bend over backwards to say that, hey, even if that's true, that some person had some knowledge in their mind, there's no evidence that the jurors as a whole discuss it. And what they'll always try to do is say, but also the evidence was overwhelming. They'll always take that position. If they want to uphold the verdict, they'll say, hey, it didn't really matter because the evidence was so otherwise overwhelming here that we don't think this was prejudicial to them, which is, if you think about it, is very problematic. But that courts often reach those conclusions, sort of, sort of a results-oriented conclusion. We are very lucky here at One Minute Remaining to have Michael Leonard as part of this show, a partner at Leonard Trial Lawyers, Chicago, Illinois in the United States. If you are ever in any strife, that is the man that you want on your team. And uh, as always, a huge thank you for him giving up his time, his very valuable time to discuss these cases with us. And not only that, what you don't see behind the scenes is me occasionally pestering Michael with questions and, uh, and help as well. So uh, he is extremely generous with his time and I am extremely grateful for it. And we will hear from Michael again after our next case. This time round, it's not a case of who done it. I just want to know why on earth he got the sentence he was given. An aggregate sentence of 100 years. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.